I, I think one of Jack Crusher's powers is that uh, he can tell when somebody is DTF. <laughs> can you read my mind? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. Together, we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today, we go into hiding with the starship Titan. Then it's a not-so-pirate's life for the Mandalorian. And finally, we tell you what we're currently fanning over. We're a mere 36 hours from Frontier Day, and we're still not close to knowing who or what Jack Crusher is. But he got hella magical this week. He can read minds and take control of other people's bodies and the red door and the red eyes. So what exactly is Jack? As I've said before, I don't want him to be a changeling. I still hope it's a misdirect. And they finally called it adults this week, Ryan. It's like they were listening to me. I don't know if they tried hard enough. They called one adult. One adult. They kind of hinted that Tuvok was one of many people that they've been calling. But like you said last week, have they tried the Klingons? Have they tried the media? Have they considered broadcasting their findings on civilian channels? I wonder if there's no such thing as Twitter in the 25th century. That's bad news for Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Two things that make this episode shine. First, Jordy's grief over Data's death and how that gave Data the strength to overcome lore. We were robbed, as my friend Chris Burris said to me yesterday, of seeing Jordy's reaction to Data's death. The first and second time around seems weird to me that Picard positions the character of Picard as being close to Data as if they were best friends, when it was Geordi who was that in the series itself. Both LeVar Burton and Brent Spiner play the scene amazingly well. Spiner is effortless, switching personalities. I really miss these two interacting together. And it was just such a great, heavy scene. The second I liked was the discussion about each character's moral compass, especially in that meaty scene where Beverly confronts Vadic, saying how she swore an oath to do no harm. Yet when it comes to her son, maybe she'd break that oath. And the discussion with Beverly and Picard over crossing the line felt very TNG to me. The conversation in the observation lounge about the morality of using a bioengineered weapon was also very TNG to me. Maybe the closest this series has actually gotten to TNG. The talk between Picard and Jack was another winner. I understand Jack still wanting to hand himself over. It's not easy knowing so many people are putting themselves at risk to keep you safe. One thing Picard didn't say, though, is that this is not about an arrest warrant or even about them being kin anymore. This is about a universe-destroying enemy not getting what they want. Jack can no longer ethically just hand himself over. Because then the changelings get everything they want. They control Starfleet, they sabotage Frontier Day, and they've got a magical crusher of their own. But speaking of Jack, I thought him and Sidney have great chemistry. I enjoy seeing both actors on screen playing off each other. Still was kind of hoping Jack would be queer, but, you know, there you have it. And I also like seeing Tuvok again. 
even though it wasn't really Tuvok. But it isn't Star Trek unless Tim Russ is in it somehow. That's true. I forget that he was in Generations, and he was also one of the terrorists in Starship Mine. Yeah. And then I think he also played Tuvok on Deep Space Nine in the Mirror Universe, though. I love Amanda Plummer. She is fantastic as Vatic. The right amount of vamp and manic energy, her delivery and body action is divine. It's a masterclass in playing a villain. She really is a treasure. She's playing this villain with just the right amount of creepiness and theatrics. And as you said, vamping, which is a term I really love. She's sort of a less cartoonish Zorg. And I love Zorg. <laughs> it's a shame that we've seen so little of her until now. Yes. But man, did she own this episode, though? She did. But her backstory brings us to problems that I have with the episode. Yeah. Vatic's backstory is bugging me. I still don't get why Vatic wants Jack. I get her reasons for vengeance on Starfleet. After all, the Black Ops division of Starfleet tortured and subjected her and the other changelings to Mengele-esque experiments. And I'm not sanguine about the Federation holding prisoners and experimenting on them like this. At least Bashir and O'Brien were aghast at learning Section 31 created a bioweapon virus. But we don't get that much here from Picard or Beverly, which I guess we can chalk up to parental concern for their son at this particular moment. And it's as if Section 31 is just the price of utopia. I will, however, mention, in all fairness, that we have seen genocidal maniacs in Starfleet in the Federation before or psychopaths who want to experiment on others. Captain Ron Tracy from TOS comes to mind, as does Dr. Adams. Then there's Kodos the Executioner, the rape gangs of Turkana 4, and all the bad morals from TNG on. But all those people were aberrations. They were rogue actors. Section 31 is a core part of the Federation and Starfleet now, as far as we can tell. What they do is a reflection of the whole. The system isn't fighting them, the system seemingly can't function without them. This has wholeheartedly and ham-fistedly become a Deep Space Nine sequel. And not just in plot, but in tone and philosophy. We're faced with a federation that tortures people with secret, illegal, genetic experiments. And they do it so that those experiments can do evil things as spies and assassins. This is some really dark stuff. And we talked last week about how the series hasn't shown us a federation worth saving. This week, they seem to be actively giving us a case for why it should die. Even Bev and Jean-Luc are willing to execute someone and basically told us, point blank, that ethics suck. Are you finding your ethics most inconvenient at this time? <laughs> yeah, ethics are supposed to be inconvenient. In fact, when they're inconvenient, that's probably when you need them the most. You're right. Ethics should be inconvenient. They should be there as the barometer to hold not only yourself accountable, but others accountable. So I guess no matter how enlightened you become, there'll always be a few fascists in the making of Utopia. Perhaps it'll always be a work in progress where vigilance is necessary, much like our current dismantling of democracy. Though if the show had used Section 31 and the experiments to comment on that, it might make it an easier pill for me to swallow. Yes, and this season can't seem to make up its mind about torture. It was cool, apparently, when Worf and Raffi were doing it to some junkie a few weeks ago. 
but it's a tragedy when it's done by some mad scientist. I, I think this goes back to our discussions about how television and genre television can't seem to let go of the 9-11 parallels. And once again, this is another case where torture is bad, but it's also useful in other situations, sort of having your cake and eating it too. And with that torture scene, we've got yet another instance of futurism being discarded. We visit a laboratory with squeaky wheels on gurneys, serrated blades, open flames, hypodermic needles, and a taser? This is stuff Dr. McCoy would have scoffed at 150 years earlier, and, and we've seen him do it. What is this, the Dark Ages? <laughs> needles and sutures. We know exactly what tech has replaced all these things in the Star Trek universe, so the writers had to have purposefully wanted to use these extremely antiquated Frankenstein evoking lab stuff. It's spooky and it's creepy. I guess in a way that rays and scanners and hypos are not, maybe? I don't know. They can be creepy. Alien tech can be creepy. Future tech can be creepy. But you know, none of this bothers me because as I've said before, I'm less of a Star Trek fan than a Roddenberry fan. I just disregard what doesn't work for me personally and I move on. But I can't help but wonder why so many writers and fans accept this kind of complete divergence from what Star Trek was originally. I don't think it's gatekeeping to say that Star Trek was an optimistic future with a bright central core, especially The Next Generation, which this series is supposed to be a sequel to. It hasn't been that since Deep Space Nine. In fact, it's been a purposeful reaction to that utopia, telling us again and again the core is rotten and only the outliers uphold its values. The franchise has been mostly about deconstructing and undermining that utopian concept for 30 years now. It's like Roddenberry told us to eat our vegetables, and we all collectively said no. And we've been gorging ourselves on candy and booze for decades. At what point do we grow up and stop rebelling? How long can we maintain this cynical adolescence? It just feels like it's been like decades of this. <laughs> it really has. But to go back a little bit to how you said that uh, this is a ham-fisted sequel to Deep Space Nine, it leaves me with these final questions. What does any of that have to do with Jack or Picard for that matter? Why go after his son? Picard wasn't heavily involved in the Dominion War. Wouldn't Jake Sisko or Sisko's child with Cassidy Yates make more sense? What's the personal connection to Picard? These are probably the questions the show wants us to have, and I hope we get our answers in these last three episodes. And now for our bad predictions. We've already been proven wrong this week about a couple of things. Irmotic syndrome may not have anything to do with the plot. It's just a red herring. Jack seems to actually be special, and he may be, as you've always feared, a changeling who has forgotten what he is. And if that's so, then the implications are going to get weird really fast. Was there an original Jack? And was he actually Beverly's son? Or is he something she adopted and he shaped himself into what she needed? That is definitely more creepy if Jack was someone she adopted and he just knowingly shaped himself into what Beverly needed, another son. Well, I was also wrong on one prediction last week, and I said that Bashir is going to show up, and it was Tuvok instead. So, womp womp. Shame on you, Ryan. I know. 
Shame on me and my entire clan. The one prediction I do have for the uh, coming episodes, because I missed Marina Sirtis this week. You know, Terry Metalis has reassured everyone that she does have a huge role in the last three episodes. But my feeling is, is that her and Riker are going to take the Shrike and the Titan bridge crew, along with the TNG characters, are going to make their escape on that vessel, head back to the Fleet Museum and get whatever's in Hangar 12, which I am still betting credits to Navy Beans that it's the Enterprise D fully restored as a showpiece for Frontier Day. That would be an interesting sight to see. I mean, they already have the CG model. All they'd have to do is build the bridge. This week's Mando was more fun than last week's, mostly because of its guest stars. My man, Captain Carson Teva is back. Appa is back. I love Paul Sun Pyung Lee, and I was happy when he first appeared last season. I want to see him get a spinoff. Also, that leather jacket is badass. I love the shoutouts that he gets on Twitter because he responds to all of them with Appa GIFs. He's just such a card. Yeah, he's a hoot. I love him. And because of that, this entire episode was badass. From the pirate siege of Novaro to the retaking by the Mandalorians, to Carson Tiva dealing with bureaucratic red tape. And Tim Meadows was the perfect person to play a man swamped under red tape and paperwork. Tim Meadows was another great surprise. This is a comedic actor that rarely gets his due. And to me, everything that comes out of his mouth is funny. It's all in his delivery. I can listen to Tim Meadows ramble about bureaucratic red tape for hours. He just seems so put upon, like, ugh, more paperwork? <laughs> Get out of my office. <laughs> and for a moment, I thought I might have actually been watching a Pirates of Darkwater episode because Nanso and Zoe was totally channeling Brock Peters in his depiction of Gorian Shard. Such a forceful yet fun character. I hope he got out of that crash alive because I want more. He will be back at the end of the season is my prediction. When it's most inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't get rid of a villain that well done or a puppet that is that detailed. Yes. Oh, yeah. The the aliens in this episode were freaking phenomenal. And that puppet and all of the special effects work, both practical and CG, are what makes all of these Star Wars shows and movies so spectacular. There's a lot of practical puppet effects, which I love, but the CG work is also above and beyond. And a lot of that comes down to Lucasfilm not being afraid of sunlight. All their ships are hit with hard, natural-looking light and sharply defined shadows. They look like real physical objects. We saw this in Rogue One, in the amazing battles both over and on the surface of Jeddah and Scarif. We saw it on Andor when Stellan Sarsgaard is in a tense standoff with an Imperial capital ship. And we saw it in action today. That X-Wing looked like a physical object. We were talking about this last week when you were saying how great the model work in Next Generation's peak performance looked. Absolutely. Those models are gorgeous. They have weight. They, they feel like they occupy space. And I can see the pretty ships. Yeah. All those models, the Hathaway, the Marauder, the Warbird, all had a ton of light on them, sometimes to the point that there were blowouts. And it looked real because the lighting was real. The ships in this week's Mando were so bright that sometimes they had blowouts. Blowouts are natural. When you're simulating life, 
you have to simulate that too. You know that I have a degree in fine art and art history. Oh, of course. <laughs> One thing you realize when you stare at a lot of old dead guy paintings is that impressionism is more visceral and more realistic looking with its heavy daubs of paint than any Renaissance painting with a licked, overproduced, low contrast surface. And that's because Renaissance painters studied shape and anatomy and all that good stuff. But Impressionists studied light and shadow. When you look at a Renoir nude, for instance, and the sun is glancing off her skin, you want to reflexively shield your eyes because there's an implied brightness that is tricking your mind into thinking you're looking at something physical. And I can't help but draw comparisons to streaming Trek, where they are avoiding light seemingly at all costs, especially in Strange New Worlds, where the ship is barely visible half the time. They even seem to be adding haze to shots to obscure things further, which is weird because there's no air in space. And all this, to me, at least, makes the waddles look cartoonish. The light isn't real, so the objects do not come across as real. And color contrast matters too. I've had to explain to veteran CG artists that light and dark areas are not the same color, only lighter and darker. Their contrast comes from differences in temperature and hue as well. As CG artists, you can put all the textures and detail you want on your models. It's meaningless if the light isn't right. The worst low-res, textureless model with naturalistic light hitting it will look better than the most complex model with bad lighting. Don't be afraid of light. Light is your friend. And the light is where we want to go in Star Wars all the time. I have seen the light. Once you go down the dark path, forever does it control your, your fate. I will say that this season of Picard is taking the effort to light the models this season a little bit more so that we can actually see them. Yeah, you can make out the actual designs now. It's not perfect, but but yeah, you can see the ships. And I just want to see pretty ships. I'm sorry. I, I like pretty ships. Okay, here's one thing I'm starting to, to realize about the Star Wars universe, other than the battle between light and dark. And it's something we've hit on in previous episodes, but government across the board just does not function in this franchise. It always falls apart, no matter who is in charge, the Empire, the Old Republic, the New Republic. Any galactic government falls apart eventually. Doesn't matter if you're a fascist slaughtering foundling Jedis or a well-intentioned democratic society. It just does not work, which makes Star Wars a study in bureaucratic entropy. So what does work? Mafia rule, crime lord rule, murder cults like the Watch. Maybe a galaxy is too big for any one political body, as my friend Hannibal Taboo said to me the other day. It's also funny that every single government seems to last a shorter and shorter amount of time. The Galactic Republic lasted centuries, I think. The Galactic Empire lasted decades. I'm not sure that the New Republic lasted longer than the Empire did before it got all blowed up. Seems like it only lasted a decade. <laughs> Me. But on one final note, I want to say how much the armorer was kick-ass in this. It was hammer time. But every time the Mandalorians talk about their culture and when Paz said, because we're Mandalorians, all I can think of is, we are Klingons! Because they are. 
And is it me or was there some serious sexual tension between Bo-Katan and the armor? Like it was palpable. I smell a new ship. So Mark, what are we fanning over this week? Ryan, Oscar season is over and the results are in. I liked a number of Oscar contenders this year, including the Banshees of Inisherin, and especially Everything Everywhere All at Once, which left me blubbering and my wife's face covered in tears for a full 20 minutes. But one contender that slipped through the cracks with little fanfare was Triangle of Sadness. I love this movie, and I know you did too, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, I loved it a lot. So this can be a fanning out for both of us. I saw it at home and thus spared a theater full of people my nonstop fits of laughter. Your local cinema was not apparently so lucky. No, I was wailing the entire time. And you know my voice and my laugh. It can carry. <laughs> oh, those poor moviegoers. <laughs> I think that my laugh, like my mother's, has been described before as a cackle. <laughs> Anyway, Triangle's plot is familiar to anyone who's watched the last two seasons of White Lotus. Rich, dull wasps go on a vacation. They mix with the locals and staff. Hijinks ensue. It starts off a little slow, focusing only on a couple of fashion models who mostly squabble about who should be paying the restaurant check. Then it moves to a cruise ship that is packed to the gills with literal billionaires. And as billionaires do, they talk about their wealth and their sexual escapades, and order the crew to do ridiculous things like stop everything they're doing and go for a swim for their entertainment. At some point in a narrative like this, a great equalizer needs to show up, and this film does that through a huge storm that rocks the ship so badly a surge of seasickness occurs. I'm not a fan of scatological humor, but these scenes of illness are so over the top that they cross any ick barrier into absolute comedy gold. Especially when you're so pleased about who they're happening to. I won't give away the ending. Some of it was a little predictable, but it changes focus to a Filipina cleaning woman and how she deals with all these privileged people when they suddenly need something desperately from her. Upstairs-downstairs comedy is rarely done so sharply and graphically. I think we need more heavy-handed eat-the-rich stories. I wish Triangle of Sadness would have gotten some acknowledgement at the Oscars, but of course... It's an honor just being nominated. Of course. And for me, the highlight was the cleaning woman played by the fabulous Dolly De Leon, who has been a Filipina actress in the Philippines for quite a long time. And I'm glad to see that she's broken out and is now being featured in all of these great things. Wonderful. So what are you fanning out over, Ryan? Recently, I was researching different types of medical shows for a TV pilot that I'm currently developing. That's what I call an action-adventure medical drama. And I came across a show from the mid-2010s called Code Black. I don't remember this show at all, so I started to watch it. And boy, did it grab me. I burned through all three seasons in a month. Set in an overcrowded ER and based on a documentary film of a real-life hospital, this show is relentless from the top to the end with medical emergencies, life and death to both patients and doctors, and drama. Every episode is tense, stressful, and cathartic. I cried at the end of every episode, and that's not hyperbole. I was a sobbing mess. I love Marcia Gay Harden, and she's the lead as Dr. Rorsch. 
And then there's Louis Guzman, who I think is just fantastic in everything he's in, including the new uh, Wednesday, a show on Netflix. He plays the head ER nurse and goes by the name of Mama to the residents because, you know, he's their mama. Rob Lowe eventually joins the cast in the second season. And Keiko O'Brien, a.k.a. Rosalind Chow, appears in several episodes as the mother of Rob Lowe's love interest. It's on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out. And it's it's a really good show. I'm sad that they didn't go on for more than three seasons. Code Black, I believe, is free with ads on the Freevee streaming service. And Triangle of Sadness is on Hulu. That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her work at SockPuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter. And I'm Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agree with or disagree with? Or just want to shoot the breeze? You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Shipful of Jerks. <laughs>